Well, how's everybody doing this morning? Good? Good? Quiet? Yeah. Hey, uh, my name's Steve. I'm the campus pastor here. I want you to know as your pastor, like I weekly face the tension of what to say about the news. Like what, what do we say when current events happen? What kind of, what kind of church are we going to be? Are we going to be the kind of church that uh, responds to every current event and every news item and everything that happens weekly? Are we going to be the kind of church that like ignores that stuff and just preaches on with the word no matter what we do? And, you know, if we do decide to address something, what do we do? Do we take a moment in the service and pray about it? Do we write an entire message around it? Or do we just uh, maybe uh, scrap what we're going to talk about altogether and just talk about current events? I just want you to know that's a very real tension that we face. Uh, and right now, it seems like it's almost weekly. You know, you say something about one hurricane and then another hurricane comes through. You say something about one event or one country and then another crisis arises. And it's, it's very difficult to decide. And I know that there are people in this room on all sides of this issue, probably. There are some of you that think, you know, we need to address this and we need to address that. And then there's some that would rather us not address any of it and just work, walk forward with teaching the word of God. And I just want you to know that's a very real tension that we feel weekly, if not weekly, at least monthly. And uh, when something really significant happens, though, like the, the largest mass shooting in U.S. history in Las Vegas this week, we've got to pause and think, okay, this is probably something that we should address. And so I want you to know that this week our team uh, prayed about and really sought the Lord on what we should say. And um, I think the Lord has laid a message on my heart, on our hearts uh, that is going to speak to the events of the past week, but also point to the hope that we have in Jesus. Because that's what we want to do. We want to always be pointing to the hope that we have in, in our Savior, Jesus, who came to free us from worry and doubt and death. And so I hope it does that for you today. My prayer today is that you leave with hope. So I was thinking this week, like, how would Jesus address something like this? What would Jesus say? And there was one time that we see in Scripture uh, where Jesus uh, addresses a current event. Uh, there's this tragedy that happens in Israel. Uh, in the south of Israel, there was a tower called the Tower of Siloam. And uh, this tower, it, there was an accident, apparently. It may not have been an accident. Maybe it was a terrorist uh, event, attack. It was probably an, an accident. We don't know for sure. But this tower falls over. And it's in Israel, so there are Jewish people around this place. And um, some of them are killed. And one day, Jesus is teaching... And believe it or not, some people in the crowd start to blame the people who were around the tower for their own death. Now, this just blew me away this week to hear Christians blaming the crowd for their own deaths. But this is what was happening in the day too. Jesus was teaching this. Uh, he was out teaching somewhere. And apparently these people are blaming the people who were killed for their own death. And watch how Jesus addresses this in Luke. It's in Luke 13, verse 4. Uh, he says, or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. So Jesus lays this theory to rest, but I want you to show, I want you to see what he does next. He, he, he says, it's not their personal sin that caused the tragedy, but it's fascinating, not only what he does, but what he doesn't do. Jesus doesn't propose solutions. He doesn't say, uh, we shouldn't build towers anymore, or people shouldn't gather around the tower, or we should make them resistant to accidents. He doesn't tell us to stay away from towers. In fact, he doesn't even talk about the event. What he does next, he's going to focus on the people. He's going to focus on the people in the crowd. Like, what can you, in the crowd, what can you do now in light of this tragedy? And Jesus, he's so kind. He's so nice. You know, if you ask 
Americans uh, to describe Jesus, you know the number one word that comes up is nice. Uh, and I think we'll see sometimes when Jesus teaches, he wasn't always nice. He was always loving, but he wasn't always nice. Um, he's so compassionate. Let's see what he's going to say to comfort the crowd in this moment. Uh, Luke 13, 5, he says, but unless you repent, you too will perish. This is the same message that Jesus teaches pretty much the whole second half of his ministry. Repent for the forgiveness of sins. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And so this is what Jesus says. So he doesn't change his message, but he says, here's what he's saying in essence, repent, turn away from your sin and turn back to God. He says, in effect, you can't predict when the end is gonna come for you. You know, the end is gonna come for all of us. We know that the end of this life is gonna come for all of us. This last time I looked, Uh, The death rate in America is still 100%. Uh, We're all going to reach the end. And some of us, tragically, are going to reach the end far before we should. And some of us are going to far outlive what we ever expected. And we'll be at the end of our life and we'll say, if I'd known I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. But we we do know that all of us are going to reach the end. And Jesus says the best thing that you can do to prepare for that is to live your life always ready for the end, staying close to God, confessing and repenting of any sin in your life, and doing your best to model your life after Jesus. You know, on Wednesday this week, I was getting the kids ready for school, and it started raining, which was weird because it hadn't rained in so long, and uh, then it started storming. It started to thunder, and uh, whenever it thunders, our dog is right next to me, right? She doesn't want me to go anywhere without her. And so I'm preparing breakfast. I'm walking through the kitchen. I'm going upstairs to make sure the kids are getting ready. And my dog is right there next to me. And it's because storms are always scary to her. They never catch me off guard, but they catch her off guard. And and the best thing I can do for her in that moment is to enter into her world. She wants to be close to her master so I can enter into her world. I can lay down on the floor with her and hold her and tell her I'm not afraid of storms, Everything's going to be all right. And you know, that could be our model of what to do in times of tragedy. Just stay close to the master. Let his words and his calm spirit comfort you. I hope you'll do that, not just this week in light of Las Vegas, but anytime you see something or hear something that doesn't seem to make sense, it surprises you, uh, don't let it draw you away from God. Let it draw you toward him instead. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we've sang a lot of words about you this morning. Uh, Your redeemer, your healer, uh, your restorer. And God, the things that stuck out to my mind the most is that you are good and you're never gonna let us down. God, not everything that happens in this world, not everything that happens to us is good, but you are always good. And so help us to hold on to that fact as we think about who you are Uh, who your son is, and uh, why we worship you. God, thanks for that fact. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you have your Bibles, open them to Luke chapter four. Um, Luke chapter four. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one of these on the floor around you. That's our gift to you. Take it home with you if you don't have a Bible at home that you can read. Um, It's page 718 in this Bible. As Jerry said, we're in this series called In the Flesh. And what we're doing is we're looking at the life of Jesus. We're tracing his steps uh, from his baptism uh, all the way to the cross. And um, we started with, we've been using this map. Um, this is Israel, or a good part of Israel. And Jesus shows up about 30 years old down in the south, the bottom of this map, right near Bethany at the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. 
He's baptized around 30 years old. He immediately goes into the wilderness. He spends 40 days in the Judean wilderness. So if you look at that area over to the west um, or the left, if you're directionally challenged, I sometimes, I always get north and south right, but I sometimes mix up west and east. And so if you look just to the left of the Jordan River where it says Bethlehem and Jerusalem, that area right there is largely wilderness between there and the Jordan River. Uh, That's the uh, Judean wilderness. Jesus spent a lot of 40 days in the Judean wilderness being tempted by the devil as soon as he was baptized. And then he comes back out of the wilderness and he starts to call his first disciples, his first followers. Then he returned to Galilee. Now, Galilee is the area in the north. If you look up in the north of this map at the top where it says Capernaum, uh, Cana, Nazareth, those are all towns in Galilee. Um, That's where he performed his first miracle. He had that wedding at Cana, and he turned water into wine. We saw that happen. Then he goes back to Jerusalem for the Passover. Jerusalem's down in the south of Israel where he uh, cleanses the temple. He clears that out. We talked about that last week uh, where he goes, uh, nice, nice Jesus, right? Goes into the temple and clears out the money changers there. And then he goes, he's headed back towards Galilee, uh, back towards kind of his home area. And that's where we said he had to go through Samaria. That's what we talked about last week, Samaria. That town Sychar right there uh, is in Samaria. That area right around there is Samaria. Jesus on his way back to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria. And that's where we're gonna pick up today uh, as he gets back to Galilee uh, on, uh, in Luke four fourteen, It says this, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Now, Galilee uh, was an area that served as a great crossroads to the world. Uh, Don, if you put that map back up, I want to show you something here. Um, Galilee, so if you look, Nazareth, Cana, Capernaum, all that area up there is, is Galilee. It's a region, uh, and there, was, there were three main roads that ran through Galilee. There was one road that ran from about Nazareth, a little bit east of Nazareth, down to Jerusalem. Uh, there was another road called the King's Highway that ran up to Rome and would have come down on the east side of the Sea of Galilee and then eventually turned and gone towards Egypt. And there was another road uh, called the Via Maris, uh, which ran right through Capernaum over to the Mediterranean Sea, which is over there to the far left of the map, to the west of the map, and then ran down along the coast of the sea. And so what happened was Galilee, even though it wasn't very highly populated, there may have been about 3 million people living in that area, according to Josephus, he was a historian. There may have been about 300 or 3 million people living in that area in 204 cities and towns. But the population uh, was deceiving because there were also always people coming through there and coming and going. So if you think about Galilee, a little bit like Indiana being the crossroads of America, has all these highways going through there. And so more people go through Indiana every year than live here, right? And Galilee's kind of like that. People are coming and going through here. One of the things that drove the Jews crazy about Jesus is he was always... Uh, reaching out to the non-Jewish people, to the Gentiles. And in a way, I think this area of Galilee was very strategic for Jesus because if he wanted to preach to Jews, he would have been where? Probably down in Jerusalem, right? Preaching in the temples. That's where many of the, uh, the more devout Jews would have lived. But he chose to spend most of his ministry up in the north in this area of Galilee where he was from. It was very strategic because people are always coming and going through there. And so this was the land where Jesus began his preaching ministry. It was very strategic. And how did Jesus get his message out? Well, people would come and hear him teach. And even if you're not a Jewish person, if you're coming through Galilee, say on the Sabbath, uh, which would have been when the synagogues were open, there's not a lot to do. 
there, are no, there would have been no stores open. There would have been no, nothing to do because it's the Sabbath. Everybody's resting. And so what can you do? Well, you can go to the synagogue and hear the preaching. And so probably a lot of non-Jewish people passing through this area of Galilee would have heard Jesus preach at the time. And people loved Jesus at this time. It says, everyone praised him in verse 15. Uh, news more easily spread from here. People started to hear about Jesus and Jesus, Jesus earned this reputation as a great teacher and a great rabbi. So what was the difference maker? Well, it said in Luke 4.14 4, uh, that he was in the power of the spirit, that the Holy Spirit, you may remember in Jesus's baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on him and stayed on him throughout his life. He had the Holy Spirit with him and that was the difference in Jesus's teaching. That's why everybody said he taught with such authority. Verse 16, he went to Nazareth, which is where he had been brought up. Now, Nazareth, you saw it on the map, was a small town. It's not now, it's a large city. Well, it's 75,000 people now. Nazareth has inspired a, a city in Pennsylvania to be named after it, and also a rock band that sang Love Hurts. And um, you're welcome for the rest of the day. <laughs> but, but then Nazareth was a small town. In fact, the name Nazareth means shoot town. Shoot like, uh, like a shoot off a plant. Like, you know, if a, if a, a plant sends, sends off a little tiny shoot, that's what Nazareth means, which is really cool because in Isaiah 11, when it was predicting the Messiah, it said, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And Jesus grew up in this shoot town. So cool. As Luke notes, it's his hometown. These are his people. And because of its location in Galilee, news would have quickly spread about what Jesus had been doing in his ministry and teaching. And probably a lot of people would have come back to hear him teach. It's safe to say that Jesus was somewhat of a celebrity when he comes back to teach in Nazareth. Verse 16 says, he went into Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He went into the synagogue as was his custom. Jesus had a habit of gathering together with other religious people on a regular basis. If you think you are a Christian but you don't need church, what makes you better than Jesus? Jesus was his custom to go into the synagogue and gather with people. And he stood up to read. So Jesus was a faithful Jew. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. We've got every reason to believe this synagogue in Nazareth was packed, as packed as a synagogue in Nazareth would have gotten at the time, uh, probably with guests and visitors, but also with regulars. Now, Jesus is going to play a role in this service. What would happen at the time is synagogues didn't have a rabbi on staff. It's not like a church today where we might have a pastor or two on staff. Uh, synagogues would have only an attendant. And the reason they had the attendant was it's likely that the synagogue housed the only copy of the scriptures that were in the town. And so somebody had to guard the scriptures and make sure they didn't get taken, they didn't get lost. And so this attendant would come and then as rabbis traveled through the area, they would invite one or more to read and to teach. And that's what Jesus is gonna do in this, in, in this uh, service. Now, a typical Sabbath worship service would have four things. They would always have worship, which probably started with prayer. Uh, and then there likely would have been singing, probably from Psalms. And then they would have recited the Shema. The Shema is a Hebrew word, which is uh, supposed to describe uh, the part in Deuteronomy where it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. They call that the Shema. And so they would have recited the Shema. They would have worshiped together through singing and they would have prayed. That's the first part, worship. The second part would be reading. One of the rabbis would be invited to stand and read scripture. That's what Jesus is doing now. He stood up to read scripture. They stand out of respect for the word of God and then they would sit down to teach. So you have worship, 
You have reading. Third, you have teaching. This would always be done by, uh, probably by a traveling rabbi. And then fourth, they would have a closing benediction or a prayer over the service. Now, that's what's happening here with Jesus. Jesus is the visiting rabbi. Uh, the synagogue invites him to come in and read. Um, and the, so the attendant brings the scroll over to Jesus. They probably would have had a regular reading um, plan where they would have gone through the scriptures in a year or two. And so uh, if you're a visiting rabbi, you have to know uh, what you're going to have to preach about that day. It's not like me. I get a week to prepare a sermon. Uh, They don't. They walk in, they open up the scripture, and that's what we're going to talk about. And so uh, even though they may know in advance what that scripture is. So that's what happens. The attendant hands Jesus the scroll, um, verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I just want you to picture there's a room full of people here, men, women, students, kids, and these are people who have seen and endured a lot. They, like us, they're living in an uncertain world. Remember, they're Jewish people who are living under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Now, they're not slaves by any stretch of the imagination as they've been in the past. They're not in exile as the Jewish people had been in the past, but certainly they're living under Roman law as Jewish people. They're they're having to pay Roman taxes as Jewish people. It's it's an uncertain world, and they're trying to make sense of it all. And if you've got to imagine that every emotion is in that room, fear, discouragement, uh, anxiousness, anger, hope, desperation, every emotion probably covered that room. And if you're in the crowd that day and you hear Jesus stand up and read from this scroll, you know what you're thinking? Yes, that's a good one. Like that's a great scripture. We know those words. We've been taught those words since we were little kids. Uh, they've been passed down for centuries now. They were, those words were first spoken while the uh, Israelites were in exile in Babylon by the prophet Isaiah. God spoke them to Isaiah and Isaiah spoke them to the people and they were meant to bring hope to the Jewish people, they were pointing to a time when God would send a Messiah, a savior into the world, someone who would make things right and set people free. And so they hear that scripture and they're very excited. But it's what Jesus does next that really strikes a chord with the people. Verse 20, then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. That's the posture for teaching. Remember, you'd stand up to read out of respect for the word of God and then you sit down to teach. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Oh, no, he didn't. He he did not just say that. That this piece of scripture that they've been waiting for hundreds of years for has been fulfilled today? Like you, you're the one? He's the one? Is that what he just said? He's the one? That's what Jesus says. And by the way, it's the first time he ever says it in public. I'm the one. I'm the Messiah you've been waiting for. I'm the promised one. I'm the one who has come to make all things right, to set the captives free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, in this phrase, the the year of the Lord's favor, Jesus is alluding to the Old Testament practice of jubilee. See, God commanded his people to have a regular pattern of work and rest. And so in the Old Testament, what we see is God telling the people, okay, you'll work for six days and you'll rest on the seventh. Work for six days, rest on the seventh. Work for six days and rest on the seventh. But there's a larger rhythm too. You can farm the land for six years, but on the seventh, you have to let it lie fallow. Let it go back to seed. And then on the next year, you can pick it back up again. They call that the Sabbath year. Every seventh year was a Sabbath year. 
And then after seven Sabbath years, so on the 50th year, the Lord declared a year of Jubilee. And the Jubilee uh, did three things, mainly. One, any land that had been given away or sold would be returned to its original tribe and its original family. So if you sold some land to pay a debt, if you gave away some land to pay for something else, that land was returned to your family and to your tribe. Uh, Two, any slaves or servants who were being held were freed in the year of Jubilee. So you were to go free. If you uh, allowed yourself to be indentured to pay a debt, you were allowed to go free. And third, any debt that was owed was released. It was forgiven. So if you borrowed money from a neighbor, it's canceled in the year of Jubilee. You don't owe anymore. Uh, Sold yourself into servanthood, you're free. You don't owe them anything else anymore. Credit cards, student loans, all of it. Jubilee sounds like a pretty good idea, doesn't it? Amen. Well, Jesus is effectively saying, I am the year of Jubilee in person. In the flesh, it's me. I am here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you see the hope that Jesus could bring? Good news for the poor, freedom for the captives, all the debt canceled. This is the Jesus we follow. As a Christian, this is the Jesus I want to follow. This is the kind of savior I was looking for when I was looking for a savior. This is the kind of savior the world is looking for. Someone who's coming to set the captives free and to release the people from slavery and to to release all the debts, to give up all the debts and to proclaim uh, sight for the blind. You know, this is who we're waiting for. What would it do for us to embrace these words and these promises for our life today, no matter where you are right now, no matter what emotion you bring into this room today, fear, anxiety, desperation, hopelessness, anger, God sent his son, his, his Messiah, his savior to lead the work of making things right in this world. He gave his life on the cross so that we can be forgiven and he came to set us free. He came to cancel the debts. Now, for now, the world that we live in is still broken. It's a messed up place. Creation is all out of order. Wars threaten. Cancer takes the lives of so many. Shootings happen. I'm not suggesting we just get used to it. I think we need to be brokenhearted when things happen in this world and we don't understand it. I'm not saying we play it down like it's not a big deal. What I'm saying is it's not a time for fear. It's not a time to lose hope. Now more than ever, we need to remember our call and our responsibility as followers of Jesus. We have to put our faith in Jesus and keep our faith in Jesus. But the people, the people who heard this, this teaching live, they weren't buying it. (laughs) They didn't see it. They refused to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And so he goes on for just a little while longer. And then this happens. If you look down to verse 28, it says, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. We'll talk about what this is in a minute. They got up, they drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, part of this, part of what they were frustrated about was that Jesus goes on to tell this story about two Gentiles, two non-Jewish people. And one of them is a lady who was stuck in an area of famine and Elijah, the prophet Elijah went and healed the land of famine. And one of them was uh, another person who was healed and he was a Gentile who was healed. And so the non-Jewish or the Jewish people are starting to get a little frustrated and upset. Part of it was that, but part of it was that Jesus, when he read from Isaiah 61, he left out a line. He left a part out. Look, let's look at Isaiah 61 too. It says this, this, this is the very scripture that Jesus was reading from, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God. That's the Messiah that many of the Jews were waiting for. The Messiah of vengeance, not the Messiah of forgiveness, the Messiah of vengeance. 
mostly uh, they were upset about this, but they were also mostly upset that he was being blasphemous. He claimed to be the Messiah. And what does it say about Jesus' humanity that the people who knew him best, the people from his hometown, didn't believe he was God, from God, that he was the son of God? The ones he'd played in the streets with, the ones that he'd studied scriptures with, the ones who had been his teachers and his friends, they didn't believe him. How human must Jesus have been to have no one believe him? So they ran off the hill and tried to throw him off. Um, They rejected him. By the way, this is how uh, they would stone people in this time. So if you read about the stoning of Stephen in the book of Acts, this is probably how he was stoned. They would take them up to the brow of the hill, throw them off the cliff, and then somebody would be assigned to drop a large stone on them. And if that didn't kill them, they would, everybody would throw stones until the person was dead. This is probably what they were trying to do with Jesus. They were trying to, to stone him, uh, but he escapes through the crowd. Now, uh, sometime later, Jesus would return to Nazareth again. He stayed away for a while. I think you can understand that. Um, But sometime later, he would return again. And once again, his hometown proved none too friendly. We see that in Mark chapter 6. If you turn over there, you'll see it. Mark 6, 1 says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? You remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about Nathaniel, and Nathaniel said, could anything good come from Nazareth? Now the people in Nazareth are even wondering. Like, isn't this the carpenter? They say, isn't this Mary's son? That's an insult, by the way. Any man would have been called after the name of his father. They should have said, isn't this Joseph's son? But they said, isn't this Mary's son? It's like, isn't this the mama's boy? That's what they're saying. Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, aren't his sisters with us? Isn't he a normal guy? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. He was amazed at their lack of faith. You know, there's only two times in the New Testament where it tells us that Jesus was amazed. I looked at this again this week. There are lots of times when other people are amazed at Jesus. They're amazed when he heals. They're amazed at his teaching because he taught as one with authority. But there's only two places where Jesus is amazed. And one of them is here, where he's amazed at their lack of faith. And the other one is uh, in Luke 7, Jesus is approached by this man, a centurion who wants his servant healed, and Jesus is amazed by his great faith. Think about this. There are plenty of times Jesus is amazing people, only two times we see him amazed, and both of them, he's amazed at someone's faith. Let me ask you this. If Jesus were here today, and he were to say, I'm amazed by your faith, would it be because your faith is so great or because it's so little? I've wrestled with this question all week. If Jesus were to tell me, Steve, I'm amazed by your faith, what would I say? Oh, yeah? Because it's so great or because it's so little? Such an important question for us to answer. Because the Bible tells us that salvation is by grace through faith alone. It tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And I'm not just talking about faith in some abstract, 
God that we can't see, some intangible God. Like, it's not about having faith that this thing that I'm going through is going to get better because God's on my side. That's not what faith is. It's not about, I'm not even talking about having faith in people. It's important to love people and to trust people and to be in healthy relationships. But if you're, you're trusting someone else to complete you or to save you, well, you're headed down the wrong path. It's not about faith in people. It's not even about having faith in yourself. That's a popular thing to talk about today. Uh, I don't know about you, but I let myself down all the time. I don't have faith in me. I mean, it's important to have faith in yourself sometimes. But if you're trusting you to save you, that's not a good thing. I mean, how big is your faith in Jesus? I mean, look, I know some of you are here because you're just checking out who Jesus is and you probably think, man, he's setting a really high bar. I'm walking into this room. I don't even know who this Jesus is and I'm supposed to have this much faith in him. Um, to, but, but for those of you who've been around church for a while, you've been in the Christian faith for a while, it means, are you believing, are you trusting 100% that this man Jesus is who he says he was? Do you have that kind of faith in Jesus? Let me tell you what Colossians 1 says about Jesus. It says this, that the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And then it says this about us, about you and me. Once you were alienated from God, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. This is you, if you're a follower of Jesus, holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If, Paul says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Do you have faith in Jesus? Do you believe he came to bring good news for the poor? That he came to set the captives free? To proclaim the time of the Lord's favor? Do you believe that even when terrible things happen and you don't understand why and it doesn't make any sense to you and your circumstances change and you start to go down the path of, well, a good God would never, do you have faith in Jesus? Hebrews 11 says this about faith. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So faith means when tragedy strikes and there doesn't seem to be any earthly answer, faith says that God can use it for his glory. When storms come and there's nothing but rubble left behind, faith says there's still hope. We may have lost some temporary things, some earthly things, but we have all the eternal things still in Christ. When cancer strikes, when relationships fall apart, when friends betray us and they will betray us, when the business closes and we lose the job, when we can't make rent, when we can't see our kids right now, when when we don't know what's next for us, our faith is seen when we curl up on the floor next to our master in a posture that says, I don't get it. I don't understand. This caught me off guard, but I know you do. And I know you have a plan. Jesus, have your way.